Good morning. My name is Mark. I'm the discipleship pastor here at New Life, and we're so excited that you're here to join us this morning, especially if you're here for the very first time. If you've never been to New Life before, you're our honored guest. We're just excited to have you here. We're, we're, uh, we're, we prepared for you. We prayed for you, and we're just honored that you decided to come out and, and spend a little bit of your time on a Sunday morning with us. So thank you. I hope you've had a great experience so far, and we hope you continue to have a great first experience with us here at New Life. Um, this morning, we're uh, talking about Palm Sunday, and, uh, but before we get into that, you know, I wrote this message right before I left for Africa, and if you don't know, me and Pastor Brad, Sadie, and Amy Tra- Sadie Scully and Amy Travis have been uh, in Africa. We got back Thursday. We were there for about eight days. Uh, we were in Uganda, and we spent a day and a little more than a day in Rwanda. The problem with writing a sermon before you leave for a foreign country to do some mission work is you know that when you come back, you're not going to want to talk about anything that you wrote about in your sermon at all. You want to talk about something completely different. Um, So I wanted to start off today by just saying thank you. Thank you for being such a generous church. Thank you for living with open hands. Thank you for being willing to bless the people of Uganda. You know, when we went over there, um, we were going to be going to see a school. There's a Christian school about five hours outside of the capital city of Kogali in Uganda. And we went up there with uh, Pastor Robert and his wife, Millie, who started the school um, and who fund and help run that school. It's a little school called Maisha. And in that school, they've been around for four years. They've been in one year in this location. They have 420 students between baby through sixth grade. They have six classrooms that are more like shacks than they are classrooms. And um, out of those 420 students, 120 of them are complete orphans with no place to go, no parents, either through violence, abandonment, or the AIDS epidemic. And while we were there, we took a bunch of, we took some emergency money with us in case something would happen and, and we would need to get home. And me and Pastor Brad and Sadie began praying about that um, because it's, it, you guys gave that money. The money that was with us is money that, that you had given. And um, we uh, found out that they had an opportunity at Maisha to buy a field about seven kilometers away from where the school was. And one of the biggest problems is feeding the kids because for 120 of them, they're completely dependent upon Maisha for their food, their clothing, and their shelter. And the other rest of the 400, the other, what, 300 students depend on them for a couple of meals every single day during the school year. And so they had this opportunity to buy some acreage about seven kilometers away and plant a field there so that they can begin harvesting some crops there so they can be able to feed the kids back at Maisha. And so we felt like God had been pretty clear that the emergency money that we took with us wasn't for an emergency, that God would take care of us, but instead the emergency money that we took with us was supposed to purchase some acreage for um, the Maisha Foundation and Maisha School. Uh, it's a Christian school. They do really, really incredible things there with the kids, and the kids go through Bible. We got to spend the entire day with them, and so thank you. Because if it wasn't for your generosity and your willingness as New Life to live with open hands, they would have struggled. And they would continue to struggle to feed kids, kids like Lynette, um, who's up there on the screen. Lynette's an orphan. Lynette attached to me. And I attached to her while we were there together and uh, really didn't want to leave her behind. And every time I would set her down and go in to help teach the teachers or move on to go play soccer with the other kids, she would cry and cry and cry 
There's a couple other pictures of some of the children that are at my Isha. This little guy was either in a foot race or maybe the race where you had to spit water into a bottle. I can't remember. It was real gross, but it's super funny. Super funny. Um, I'm sure you'll hear more about Africa in the future, but I want to thank you because those little faces are precious. They're people with names that God created in his image. And he has a purpose, a plan, and an intention for them. And because of you, those little faces will get to eat. Those people that God created in his image will have food because of you. So I don't want you to ever underestimate what giving can do. I don't want you to ever underestimate what sacrifice is capable of doing. Because what may seem small or minor or insignificant to us, God can multiply and do immeasurably, immeasurably more than we thought that he could do with it. And he's doing that right now in Maisha. So thank you so much. Today we're in a gap. We're between uh, two series, and I've had the opportunity to preach almost every Palm uh, Sunday for the last four years, but I've never actually got to preach about Palm Sunday um, because we were always closing a series. I was closing the series rather than focusing on Palm Sunday, so I was excited. This year, we're between series. We just ended one, and if you don't know what happened in it, you can watch it. It was the last six weeks called Elephants. We address some really tough issues, and then uh, next weekend on Easter weekend, we're actually kicking off a brand new series called Mountain Monologues in which we're going to be looking chapter by chapter verse by verse, Matthew 5, 6, and 7. We're going to be doing that for 20 weeks. It's called the Sermon on the Mount. It's the biggest sermon that Jesus preached that we have recorded anyway. And uh, we're going to be spending 20 weeks. It's the longest series that uh, we have done since I've been here at New Life for sure. I think we did one that was, that was longer, maybe on the book of Romans before I was here. This is the longest one since I've been here. We're really excited about what God is going to do through this series and through New Life over the coming months. And so make sure that you're here next weekend and you don't want to miss it. So it's live online every week, and if you're live with us right now on Facebook, thank you for joining us, and we love having you here. Thank you for joining our family. But today, we get to begin a three-part journey that's going to happen all this week. The rest of, well, most of the church world is joining in in something called Holy Week, and it starts with Palm Sunday, and it extends through Easter. And so we're in kind of like the beginning of a three-part story, and in the beginning of the story, Jesus enters Jerusalem, and it leads up to Good Friday, where he's crucified. And Good Friday leads to Easter Sunday where he is resurrected and comes back to life. And so uh, don't miss the opportunity to come out and join us on Friday night for Good Friday. And don't miss the opportunity to be here for one of the Easter services this upcoming weekend. So a little bit about what was going on at the time 2,000 years ago whenever we had Palm Sunday, because Palm Sunday is significant to the church, and I think it shows us as followers of Jesus how we should live and how we should behave. I think there's some important truth that we can draw from what was going on. So Jesus and his followers were coming into Jerusalem, and on this thing that we now call Palm Sunday, what was originally something called the beginning of Passover. Now, Passover was a Jewish holiday, and why were the Jews celebrating something called Passover? It was this week-long festival where the Jews would celebrate for an entire week, and they would gather together in the capital city, and that's where they would come and have their giant party. See, several hundred years ago, before that, the Jews were in slavery in a land called Egypt, where they had been slaves for 400 years, until a guy named Moses showed up after 40 years of being a shepherd, and he delivers the people of Israel from slavery under the Egyptians. And they are delivered through
through a whole set of miraculous circumstances. Fire falls from heaven, locusts invade Egypt, the Nile River turns to blood. But eventually what happens at the very end is that the angel of death himself comes into Egypt and he kills every firstborn male in the land. And the Israelites in their own community where they were kept as slaves took the blood of a lamb and they spread it on their doorposts and above their doors. And that night they watched as the angel of death passed over their homes. And so they call it Passover because it was literally the night that the angel of death passed over their homes and spared their firstborn males. And Moses then led the people of Israel out through a lot of other miraculous works into a land called the Promised Land, which we, call, which we now call modern day Israel. And so every year, the, uh, the Israelites would get together and they would remember and they would celebrate what God had done, not unlike what Holy Week is for Christians today, where we gather together for a week to celebrate and remember what it is that Jesus has done for us. So it's a tense time. See, the Romans occupy Israel at this point. And so um, what would happen is all of the people from the surrounding countryside would come into Jerusalem all at the same time for this week-long party. So it would be like Pittsburgh throwing a party that was going to last an entire week, except everybody else in the country showed up for it. So it was packed. There was no place for people to stay. It was crazy. And these big crowds would oftentimes bring up riots. The, the Israelites had been underneath of Roman rule for 30 years, about 30 years at this point. And they had rebelled several times during those 30 years. And so the Romans and the Israelites don't always get along real well. There were people called zealots that were, actually one of them runs with Jesus. And they're the equivalent of kind of like an old school religious terrorist who was trying to overthrow the Romans. Like the, the, the Romans felt very uncomfortable when the Jews would party like this because oftentimes it ended up into some sort of riot or some sort of rebellion. And so it was a great time of celebration, but it was also super, super tense. And Jesus is riding in and people are calling him the Messiah and the King of the Jews. So the, the Romans are, I mean, the Romans literally built a, a, like a giant guardhouse, a palace type thing, uh, on the corner of Temple Mount, which is where the, the Jews would go to worship God at the Temple of Solomon. And, and Pilate himself, the governor uh, who ruled over that area, stationed himself there to keep an ever-watching eye and remind the Jews while they were worshiping who is always in control. So now the Romans have this man who's coming to Israel during Passover, coming into Jerusalem, who the Jews are calling the king of the Jews. And the religious leaders want him dead. So it's a tense time as Jesus is preparing to enter the city of Jerusalem for Passover. And a man named Luke, who was a doctor, recounts what happens. And he went around and took eyewitness accounts from a bunch of people. And he says this, starting in Luke 19, verse 28. After telling this story, Jesus went on toward Jerusalem, walking ahead of his disciples. As he came to the towns of Bethpage and Bethany on the Mount of Olives, which is not, Mount of Olives might seem like it's far away. It's right across from Mount Zion which is the heart of the city of Jerusalem. He sent two disciples ahead. Go into that village over there, he told them. As you enter it, you will see a young donkey tied there that <coughs> no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks, why are you untying that colt? Just say the Lord needs it. So they went and found the colt, just as Jesus had said. And sure enough, as they were untying it, the owners asked them, why are you untying that colt? And the disciples simply replied, the Lord needs it. So they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their garments over it for him to ride on. As he rode along, the crowds spread out their garments on the road ahead of him. When he reached the place where the road started down the Mount of Olives, all of his followers began to shout and sing as they walked along, praising God for all the wonderful miracles they had seen. 
Blessing on the king who comes, the king, the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven, in glory, in highest heaven. But some of the Pharisees among the crowd said, Teacher, rebuke your followers for saying things like that. He replied, That's Jesus. If you keep quiet, the stones along the road would burst into cheers. There's a ton of symbolism that's going on in this passage, but I want to focus on two key things. The first one is that Jesus rides into Jerusalem on a donkey on a donkey to celebration and he specifically says i want you to go find a donkey and not just a donkey but a a, a donkey's colt and so he rides in on a donkey and this donkey represents humility humility and peace because at the time you see this would happen pretty often for a, a, a Roman general. And you can see how much the Roman occupation has influenced Jewish customs. See, what would happen when a Roman general would conquer a foreign city is he would ride in with his troops on a war horse. And they would lay their coats or they would lay palms down on the trees and they would celebrate him. It was a symbol of victory. It was a symbol of victory. But if a Roman general would potentially win a country or a city over through diplomacy instead of war, it wasn't uncommon for them to possibly ride in on a donkey as a symbol of peace between them and the city. Nor was it terribly uncommon for them to conquer somebody and they would take that foreign king and they would place him on a donkey as a sign of humility. And they would embarrass him and parade him potentially naked on a donkey in front of a whole bunch of people, in front of the army or in front of his subjects. And so the, the, the Roman custom had become a little bit a part of the Jewish world, but the, the Jews didn't think that Jesus was coming in peace. They thought he was coming as a conqueror. You see, they believed that Jesus was going to fulfill prophecies that said that there was going to be someone to come sit on the throne of David forever. And so they thought Jesus was coming as a ruling king. They believed he was coming to overthrow the Roman government, and he could have. But that's not why he came. He came in the name of peace which is the exact opposite that Jesus' followers thought he was coming in. They thought he was coming in the name of war. They thought he was coming in the name of rebellion. They thought he came to restore Israel. And he fulfilled all those prophecies, and he did all of those things, but many of them not in the physical world. Instead, the prophecy that he chose to fulfill physically was actually from Zechariah 9.9. Zechariah 9.9 says this, Rejoice, O people of Zion. Shout in triumph, O people of Jerusalem. Look, your king is coming to you. He is righteous and victorious. Yet he is humble, riding on a donkey, riding on a donkey's colt. Jesus fulfills this prophecy as he rides into Jerusalem during the triumphant entry on Palm Sunday. Now, I talk about palms because in the book of John, John recounts the story saying that people were taking palms from the trees and they were waving them, shouting, Hosanna, Hosanna in the highest, and they were laying the palms before Jesus. It's the only of the four Gospels that talks about the palms, but the palms were a symbol of victory. They were a symbol of of righteousness and victory. And so when people came and waved those palms, it wasn't uncommon for people to do this with the occupying Roman generals either. So it shows that the people expected Jesus to be coming in power and in victory and war to reinstate Israel, but he instead came in humility and in peace. Humility and in peace, which is the big link to our take-home point today. And our take-home point is the one point I'm going to seek to make so that we can take it home and live it out in the coming week. And it's this. Jesus came in peace and humility. It's simple. Profound, but simple. Jesus came in peace and humility. See, this event profoundly impacts the way that followers of Jesus should follow. It's a novel thought that if we call ourselves a follower of Jesus, that we should follow him. Or do what he said. Or mimic his behavior. 
But if Jesus came in humility and peace, it means that these are important qualities that should come out of who we are as his followers as well. And so we're going to spend the rest of time today focusing on just that. Followers of Jesus are called to live in peace and humility. And true, we have ultimate victory through Jesus Christ in our lives, but our behavior should be a reflection of Jesus' character. Our character should be a reflection of Jesus' character. So I was curious about what this looks like and whether Jesus taught about peace and humility in other places, and it turns out he does. But also, so does his apostles. This was impressed so heavily, this idea of peace was impressed so heavily upon the people who followed him that when they went and started churches and began this movement after Jesus rose again and went up to heaven, um, that peace became a central teaching in what the apostles taught the churches. So much so that Paul writes this to the Romans, who he has not visited yet, by the way, but he's writing to them. Bless those who persecute you. Do not curse them. Pray that God will bless them. Be happy with those who are happy and weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with each other. Don't be too proud to enjoy the company of ordinary people. Don't think you know it all. Don't think you know it all. Never pay back evil with more evil. Do things in such a way that everyone can see you are honorable Do all that you can to live in peace with everyone. Paul wrote this to the Roman church. The Roman church had been going through oppression and persecution. In fact, all the Jews that started the church in Rome had been evicted from Rome and thrown out of their homes. And what were left were the Gentile Christians who were running the church. And eventually the Jews came back and were allowed back in the city. But at the time, they were being oppressed. Rome will eventually try to eradicate Christians altogether by mutilating them and torturing them and burning them alive. And so the, the, the Roman church has reason to look at the government around them and say, I, we want to fight back. They also live in one of the most pagan cultures in all of human history. They have a reason to look at the paganism and the horrible depravity of the culture around them and say that we don't want to be a part of that. But Paul doesn't write this to them and say, I want you to go to war with the government or I want you to go to war with the culture. He says instead, what I want you to do is I want you to live in peace with all people. Other translations say, I want you to live in peace with all people as long as it depends on you. We spent uh, several days in Uganda, but then eventually we flew to Rwanda. And uh, if you don't know much about Rwanda, in 1994, there was a genocide there 25 years ago. Um, I was five years old. And we were there during the 25th year anniversary and remembrance of the genocide. It happened on April, began on April 7th. And... um, It was unlike anything I had ever experienced. Um, During the genocide, there was two ethnic groups. They had divided originally economically, um, but it had become a tribal issue. And there was the Tutsis, who at one time were considered better than the Hutus, but were vastly outnumbered. And over time, the Tutsis began to receive persecution and being driven from their homeland and began moving into other countries. And when they attempted to come back, there was a peace treaty that was signed between the free sort of army of the Tutsis and the government that was run by the Hutus. When the peace treaty was signed, they shot down the president's plane. And that night, they started a systematic genocide where they brutally, brutally murdered, brutalized, tortured a million people in a hundred days. And it wasn't just an army who came in and did it, it was neighbors. 
who picked up a machete from their gardening shed and went to their friend's house next door and cut babies out of mother's arms and cut children apart. They intentionally used the most brutal weapons and the most blunt objects that they could. They systematically brutalized women with men who are HIV positive, forcing them beforehand to kill their own children. For a hundred days, the world did nothing as the Tutsis were ruthlessly, brutally slaughtered. We went to the genocide uh, memorial and we walked through and learned this story. And then we stood outside as Tutsis brought wreaths of flowers to lay on the mass grave where 250,000 people are buried. A quarter of the people who were slaughtered during that time. We traveled with a guy named Pastor Jimmy who had a profitable career and left it to start a church called Potter's Hand in one of the districts of the capital city of Rwanda. In Pastor Jimmy's church, there are Tutsis and there are Hutus, both. Most of the Tutsis who are in his church hid while their families were slaughtered. Almost every one of them has lost someone to the hands of a Hutu. Many of the Hutus, after committing their horrible crime, admitted to it, confessed, and told the family where they could find their loved ones, where they had hidden the body, discarded it, or buried it. When they did that, their sentence was cut shorter, so many of them are back into the community now. So in outside of Pastor Jimmy's church, there are Hutus who betrayed their friends to the government, and there are Hutus who slaughtered Tutsis with their own hands, with their own blunt instruments, who have served time, and are now sitting in church next to Tutsis, and they all call themselves Rondans now. And it occurred to me that in America, oftentimes, we split and leave churches over the color of carpet, whether we have pews or chairs, whether we wear jeans or suits, whether we let guitars on stage or we have a choir. We can't live at peace with one another over relatively simple things. And it occurred to me that I don't know anything about the resiliency of the human spirit and our capability of forgiving reconciling, and loving one another. Because this morning, right now, well, seven hours ago, there are Tutsis and Hutus across the world who are gathered in churches together, forming a better Rwanda, despite what happened 25 years ago, who lived through that trauma. And yet they've chosen to forgive and live at peace with one another as long as it depends on them. And it was convicting to me to think of the people that I feel like I can't live at peace with when I'm standing in a nation of people who instead of choosing a path of violence have chosen a path of reconciliation, of Christians who have chosen to live at peace with people who may have killed their family members. That's unbelievable to me. But this is the type of peace that Jesus calls us to. 
Paul didn't say to live at peace with your family or to live at peace with your neighbors or your coworkers or your small group or even just your church. He said to live at peace with all people. All. That means people who are different than us. People who think differently than us. People who believe differently than us. Most Christians default to the flow of culture and we live at odds with people that we disagree with. We're commanded to do everything we can to live at peace with everyone, but most of us have trouble living at peace with the people in this room, let alone people of a different political persuasion, ethnic group, religious background, or sexual orientation. We struggle to live at peace. But here's the reality. Jesus didn't just come riding on a donkey in peace for the Romans or the religious leaders who wanted to kill him. It wasn't just a sign for them. It was a sign for all people. Because Jesus came to make peace between you and God. He came to make peace between me and God. When he rode in on a donkey, it was a representation for all future generations forever. That Jesus came to bring with him peace and peace to the fullest. And first and foremost, peace between us and God, that when we embrace Jesus and ask him to come into our lives, that we move from being enemies of God, which is what we're described when we don't know Jesus, to being children, children of God. When we accept Jesus and embrace him in our lives, Jesus rode on a donkey because he came to make peace between God and us. He came to make peace between God and us. Now, I want to be clear. When I'm talking about making peace with everyone, I'm not saying that you should abandon boundaries because in your life, you may have established very healthy and very good boundaries between you and people that you cannot live at peace with. See, the Bible tells us to live at peace with everyone as long (laughs) as it depends on us. The reality is sometimes it does not depend on us. Sometimes people will not let us live at peace with them. Peace is a two-way street. Humility is one way, but peace is a two-way street which means both people have to have some desire to live at peace with one another. And there are times in our life where there are people who will not live at peace with us. I'm not telling you to abandon those boundaries. I'm not telling you if you've removed someone from your life because they're toxic and it's healthy for you that you need to reestablish that relationship. Please don't misunderstand what I'm saying. I'm not saying that. I'm also not saying that you need to change your, uh, your beliefs or your convictions in order to live at peace with somebody else. Abortion is wrong. And I don't need to become pro-choice in order to live at peace with somebody else who's pro-choice. But at the same time, it's also not okay for me to slander them or bomb an abortion clinic or throw rocks at the women going into the clinic because I am called to live at peace with everyone as long as it depends on me. And so are you. To live at peace with everyone as long as it depends on us. Many of us are not living at peace with others, not because of other people, but because of our own issues. Many of us are not living at peace, not because of others, but because of our own issues. We might have a constant need to be in the middle of drama because we really want attention. And that has caused a whole long line of busted relationships and burnt people. Or or maybe we have really low self-esteem and we value ourselves really poorly and so we tear others down to make ourselves feel better about who we are. Our pride may be getting in the way of admitting that we're wrong and seeking forgiveness. We may be more committed to America than we are to Jesus, which constantly puts us at odds with anybody on the opposite side of the political aisle. Humans have all kinds of hang-ups that stop us from living at peace with one another, but we're commanded to get over them. We're commanded to move past them. We're commanded to grow past them, 
and live at peace with all people. And you know what? There was a certain amount of peace that I thought was possible, but after being in Rwanda, I realized that I haven't even scratched the surface. There's always more that I can be doing. So from the very beginning, oh, the most significant barrier for us living at peace with one another and the people around us is our pride. From the very beginning, pride has been our most deceptive and destructive companion. Pride caused Adam and Eve to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Pride caused Cain to kill Abel. Pride caused the, na- the nations of the world to be scattered and the language to be confused. Pride spoke to Judas to betray Jesus for a bag of silver. And pride speaks to each of us and whispers in our ear every day. And honestly, most of us are for- more familiar with the voice of pride than we are the voice of the Holy Spirit or the voice of the shepherd. Pride destroys our lives. It's the root of many sins. 1 Peter 5.5 5 tells us that God opposes the proud and gives grace to the humble. It's easy to serve the church or to go to work from a place of pride. But God tells us that he opposes the proud. And I don't know about you, but I would rather God be on my side than God opposing me. Which tells me that if God is opposing me, I have no place at work in the ministry or in the kingdom. So when we suffer from pride and we allow pride to destroy our lives and infect all parts of us, no matter where pride is, pride makes us unfit for ministry because God can't possibly bless and oppose something simultaneously. And when we have a point of pride in our lives and so wrapped up in ourselves, when we become prideful, we become just not even remotely useful for God's kingdom. When pride pollutes our lives, we become unfit for God's kingdom work. The king Nebuchadnezzar learned this. He was the king of Babylon, and his pride became so much that God took the sanity of his mind and sent him out of the fields to live as an animal and eat grass until he was humbled. And when he was humbled, God brought him back and reinstated him as king of Babylon. Our pride can destroy our lives, and it always destroys our kingdom effectiveness. Many spiritual leaders have fallen short of their kingdom potential because of their pride, and thousands of, uh, thousands of others, thousands more, have never experienced any, any kingdom effectiveness. I'm going to say that all again because I stumbled. Many spiritual leaders have fallen short of their kingdom potential because of their pride, and thousands more have never experienced any kingdom effectiveness. There are thousands of followers of Jesus that will never experience any effectiveness in the kingdom because they can't walk away from their pride. So if we're going to imitate Jesus, then we have to give up our pride and accept the humble position that Jesus did. Paul echoed these words in Jeremiah when he said this, God has united you with Christ Jesus. For our benefit, God made him him to be wisdom itself Christ made us right with God. He made us pure and holy, and he's freed us from sin. Therefore, as the scriptures say, this is from Jeremiah, if you want to boast, boast only about the Lord. I have heard humility defined as not thinking less of yourself, but thinking about yourself less. And I don't think that that is overall a bad definition. But the reality is many of us have too inflated a view of ourselves. We think far too highly of ourselves whether it was because of getting promotions or pats on the back at work or because we really believe that just through our own power we can do the work of ministry or maybe we get wrapped up in the same things at home with our wife or our husband and our children. We need a healthy understanding of who we are in view of God. Pride derives self-worth from what we can create, what we can do, and humility derives self-worth from who God is and who he says that we are. Pride derives self-worth from what we can do, what we can accomplish, 
And humility gets its self-worth from who God is and who he tells us we are. Our lives have to reflect Jesus on that original Palm Sunday. Not because we need it, we do need it, but because, frankly, the world needs it. The world will be surprised by our humility. They should be surprised by the lengths at which we will go to to live at peace. They should be surprised by the fact that we are willing to forgive beyond anything that they would be willing to forgive. Our culture has painted Christians as arrogant, warmongering, prideful hypocrites. And in many cases, their description has been pretty spot on. So we don't go out in the world today to prove them wrong from a point of pride. But when we do go out, we seek to live in peace and humility, to change people's minds, and ultimately always to point them towards Jesus. This is really all wrapped up in our next step this week, the thing we're going to do and live out in the week ahead. It's this, I will live with humility and peace with everyone as long as it depends on me this week. Practically, most of us have an area of our life that we think too highly of ourselves. And it's going to be terrible, and it's going to suck to give that up this week. We won't like it, it's going to hurt, and we'll probably feel like we're humbled, which is a good thing, by the way. And so some of us, we know the person we're not living at peace with, or the people. We know exactly who they are at work or at home, and we need to, as long as it's within our power, do everything we can to live at peace with everyone this week. Let's pray. Father God, I thank you. I thank you for what you're doing in Uganda and Rwanda. I thank you for the example that they are to us. I pray, Father, that we would live at peace with all people this week, that we would change people's minds, not out of a place of pride, but as a humble servant, loving and caring for those that we encounter. Go with us this week in the power of your Holy Spirit. In your name we pray. Amen.